TVA 21 Academy Radio. We humans want a sea tenderly caressing the shores, a sea whose bright, deep blue soothes sorrows and anger, a sea safe to swim in, a sea where cadavers and waste disappear, a sea of pristine predators who leave us alone, a sea whose delicacies joyfully die in our arms, a sea free of stings, a sea whose waves carry us wherever we'd like to go, a sea that lets us breathe over and under water, a sea that warms us and absorbs our heat, a sea of creatures to talk to, a sea of singing and dancing and falling in love, not falling, a sea of silence, a sea that teaches immortality and peace, a sea that forgives and forgets, a sea that is all gentle touch. But what are the wants of the sea? What are the wants of the sea? Welcome to Ocean Wants, a series of 10 podcasts that playfully explores how non-humans could like our planet to be. Conceived and hosted by Ingo Nierman, Ocean Wants was commissioned to celebrate TBA 21 Academy's 10th anniversary. Episode 8, Pain-Free Sea, featuring David Pierce. Shouldn't the reduction of suffering be our priority when taking care of others' needs, particularly the needs of those we can't ask? Soon, CRISPR-edited gene drives could alter the pain perception and hedonic range of any sexually reproducing species. I'm Ingo Niemann, a speculative writer, most recently of the book Mare Amoris, and today I'm talking to David Pierce, a transhumanist philosopher who advocates the abolition of all negative feelings. He speaks from his home in Brighton, UK. I'm a transhumanist. Back in 1998, I co-founded with Nick Bostrom the World Transhumanist Association. Now we branded as Humanity Plus. What is a transhumanist? Transhumanists want to essentially create a triple S civilization of super intelligence, super longevity, and my particular focus, super happiness. The super intelligence is the idea that we can massively expand our cognitive capacities and yeah, create essentially full spectrum super intelligence. Super longevity is pretty self-explanatory, just as silicon robots can be upgraded and repaired indefinitely. Transhumanists want to defeat the biology of aging and lead quasi-immortal youthful lifespans. But my particular focus has always been the problem of suffering, not just in humans, but in non-human animals. I think our overriding moral obligation is to defeat the biology of suffering. And whereas through almost all of human history to date, essentially these were just pious sentiments, modern technology, in particular uh, genome editing, gives us the technical capacity to reprogram the biosphere and create 
life based entirely on gradients of intelligent bliss. Uh, of course, it's an absolutely daunting challenge, the idea of reprogramming the biosphere. But what really daunts me aren't so much the biological genetic challenges as the ethical ideological challenges. Uh, status quo bias runs deep. What do you think has humanity not been that great at reducing suffering in the past? Uh, essentially, nature evolution didn't design us to be happy. Uh, crudely speaking, uh, nature designed us to leave more copies of our genes, to, to maximize the inclusive fitness of our DNA, and other things being equal, discontent and all manner of suffering is adaptive. Uh, and therefore, although over hundreds, indeed thousands of years, uh, humans have attempted to modify, improve their environment, practiced all manner of social and political form. Uh, if you look around, you'll see that we are surrounded by yeah, the trappings of modern civilization. And yet, none of this can tackle the negative feedback mechanisms of the hedonic treadmill. Uh, this is hedonic adaptation, the idea that each of us has a genetically constrained, largely genetically determined hedonic set point around which we tend to fluctuate in the course of a lifetime. Uh, consequently, that on average, most people today are probably neither more nor less happy or unhappy than their ancestors on the African savanna. And unless we have the willingness to edit our genetic source code and upgrade our reward circuitry, then essentially uh, suffering, all manner of suffering ranging from existential angst to jealousy to uh, depression to anxiety disorders, essentially these ancestral states will persist indefinitely. Unless that is, we are prepared to use the tools of, of biotech to redesign our own nature. You could assume that we are just not able to to perceive pleasure over an expanded period of time. But it's not true. There are these uh, crazy experiments with wireheading where people can be put into a stage of uh, ongoing bliss or of an ongoing orgasm that kind of never ends. Yeah, back in 1954, Olds and Milners stumbled on what were then mistakenly called the pleasure centers, essentially implanting electrodes in the mesolimbic dopamine system and allowing rats or any other uh, creature, including humans, to self-stimulate, apparently induced this great frenzy of pleasure. But it transpires that what were then called the pleasure centers are more aptly called the desire centers. And yes, in principle, one way to get rid of suffering, one might naively imagine, is to allow everyone to compulsively self-stimulate their reward uh, or desire centers. Um, however, for all sorts of reasons, I don't think this is a viable solution to the problem of suffering. The only people uh, who, who tend to find wireheading an attractive prospect tend to be severely depressed. 
there would always be selection pressure against any predisposition to wireheads, i.e. Uh, wireheads wouldn't want to, to rear baby wireheads. And wireheading doesn't preserve information sensitivity. All you care about is, is pressing the lever. And so although wireheading is an existence proof that it's possible to uh, live a life without suffering, uh, nonetheless, it's not a viable long-term solution. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I was entranced by uh, the prospect of wireheading when I stumbled across the idea as a teenager in some pop science text. Um, but though it's been known about for many years, uh, essentially, yeah, most people find the idea uh, deeply unattractive. The strange thing is, on the one hand, everything is about the pursuit of happiness and uh, people would say this is like the core aim in their life to be happy and maybe even to have other people or even have non-humans being happy but then effectively what we do is kind of in no relation to making us more happy how does this even intellectually work well essentially evolution has engineered us to pursue activities that will not uh, in the long run make us sustainably happy. Uh, uh, even though uh, many people now live, for example, lives of material comfort, there are some uh, things like, for example, pursuit of status, which essentially is zero sum. There is simply no way one can create a society in which everyone is high status. What I find really bizarre that even, you know, you could say, yeah, so people are not so, they're just into other things. They're into, as you said, into status, into success, into competing. Uh, but even in fields that are kind of purely dedicated to empathy is not that different and in particular when it comes to to our environment so when you think of uh, conservation biology it's all about the well-being of other species but it's not really about the actual feelings it's not about minimizing their suffering no, many people have had some of their most beautiful experiences in nature, communing with nature. There's the whole uh, sub-discipline of evolutionary aesthetics. And a lot of us are fed on a diet of wildlife documentaries. And I can enjoy a good David Attenborough special, you know, the tones of hushed reverence, the beauties of nature, uh, all the wonders of the living world. And yet, essentially, Darwinian life is a monstrous engine for creating suffering. It's the food chain, it's creatures eating each other. The great majority of animals in nature lead very short, nasty, brutish lives and come to a sticky end. And even if they make it to adulthood, uh, much of their life is spent ravenously hungry, uh, in the case of herbivores threatened by uh, uh, predators, 
Uh, and yeah, death is not a, a gentle, beautiful affair. Most uh, animals in nature either slowly starve to death or uh, end up in the jaws of a predator and being eaten alive or asphyxiated is pretty ghastly. And so, yeah, what is the solution? Uh, it's an ancient vision in one sense. Recall the book by Isaiah in the Bible, the peaceable kingdom, a future world where the lion and the wolf lie down with the lamb. Yet this would generally by secular scientific rationalists be dismissed as just religious utopian dreaming. But in principle, at any rate, uh, there are all kinds of ways in which we can intervene in nature to essentially reduce, mitigate, and eventually prevent suffering altogether. Something like synthetic gene drives, for example. Synthetic gene drives cheat the laws of Mendelian inheritance. And if you want, if an intelligent moral agent wants to spread a benign gene across an entire sexually reproducing population, even at what would naively be a fitness cost to the individual, it is now technically possible to do so. Uh, I focus uh, on the SCN9A gene, the so-called volume knob for pain, dozens of different uh, variants. Uh, in humans, prospective parents could choose benign copies of the gene for their future offspring. But in the case of non-human animals in the wild, it, we could choose for, uh, uh, let's say, a benign uh, version of SCN9A with a, uh, it confers a very high pain threshold, and then spread this benign gene across an entire uh, free-living population remotely. Uh, now, this is jumping the gun a lot in that before we can start civilizing uh, terrestrial oceanic uh, ecosystems, we must first stop systematically harming non-human animals in factory farms and, and slaughterhouses. Uh, animal agriculture is a, is a monstrous crime against sentience. Um, but yeah, it, it's not simply enough to stop harming sentient beings as we do today. We need to make the, the moral transition to systematically helping them. And biotech, in principle, allows us to do so. There would, of course, be a need for pilot studies, little constructing little self-contained artificial biospheres, uh, low suffering and then no suffering. Once again, we can sketch out blueprints. But uh, yeah, as well as the purely technical side here, there is the ethical question that humans need to become aware of the fact that essentially we are responsible for the well-being or ill-being of not just every other species uh, on the planet, but individuals matter. And whereas traditional conservation biologists have not focused on the well-being of individuals, but the national well-being of species, I think essentially it is our moral responsibility to ensure all sentient beings can flourish. And yeah, we're living in the last century of involuntary suffering in the sense that, yeah, if next century and beyond there is still suffering in the living world, it will be because we choose to conserve it. And I would very much hope that traditional conservation biology, which is an explicitly normative discipline, 
can uh, essentially be changed into the discipline of compassionate biology. Maybe let's start with this one technique uh, of using gene drives. Uh, this is a rather new perspective that this is possible. I remember speaking to you something like 15 years ago and you were far more pessimistic. You thought it would need uh, nanotechnology and you said something like more than 100 years to get to this point that uh, nature could be modified in such ways to eradicate suffering. But with gene drives, it's much easier. Yes. I mean, like many people, I was completely blindsided by the potential of gene drives. Gene drives are probably going to be used first to defeat vector-borne disease in Africa, something like malaria. Now, as well as helping uh, humans and unhuman animals by defeating vector-borne disease, it would also be possible to spread benign genes, genes modulating everything from pain sensitivity to hedonic set points. And you're quite right. When I wrote The Hedonistic Imperative back in 1995, which was my essentially an online manifesto calling for the use of biotech to get rid of suffering throughout the living world, uh, I, yeah, I struggled to understand how it was going to be possible to help for example, uh, small creatures and marine ecosystems, uh, fast reproducing uh, rodents and the like, and was reduced to invoking uh, Eric Drexler, nanotech, engines of creation, and the idea that it would be possible to have uh, vast swarms of nanobots patrolling the oceans and the like. Well, it certainly will be possible. And later this century, every cubic meter of the biosphere will be accessible to surveillance, micromanagement and control with all the implications for good and bad uh, that this entails. But what I couldn't envisage, and I don't think anyone else could too, because it sounds ecologically illiterate, the idea that it would be possible to spread desirable, ethically desirable genes across entire sexually reproducing species. Essentially, this is biased inheritance. Uh, 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 essentially, each of us uh, has, normally has two copies of the gene and in sexual reproduction, it's normally would normally be 50-50, which uh, version, which allele you pass on to, the, to your offspring, it's possible to use uh, CRISPR-based synthetic gene drives to bias ratios. And, and making it sound as though this is simple, it's not, it's computationally extremely demanding, but we're not going to run out of computer power. And if, as a species, we ever decide that whether it's Gautama, Buddha's vision, may all have life be delivered from suffering, or indeed the biblical vision of a world where the lion and the wolf lie down with a lamb. If we decide we want a low pain and eventually a no pain biosphere, this is going to become computationally feasible. You made this calculation that it costs something like $10,000 per species to, to implement like a genetic... 
yeah, the uh, the prototype would be vastly more expensive because essentially one would initially need to use uh, artificial biospheres. Uh, then one would test for a, a single species, but just as sequencing the human genome uh, costs around about a billion dollars, extremely expensive, the price has, has since crashed. And the same would be true of micromanaging uh, remotely the global uh, ecosystem. This enormous power of, of gene drives and how they replicate uh, and uh, start to dominate a species, especially species that have a lot of offspring and that don't need long till they're able to be reproductive. Yes, so the faster the rate of reproduction, uh, the quicker gene drive can spread to an entire population. So yes, it would be possible very rapidly to help all the world's octopuses, whereas something like slow reproducing whales or dolphins, it would take much longer. And gene drive can be used to, to regulate population sizes as well, because though in the case of large terrestrial vertebrates like uh, elephants, it'd be possible to use, uh, you know, contraception. Clearly, the implementation details would be left to the professionals. I think the job now of bioethicists is essentially to set out as much detail as is needed just to show that this is feasible, impossible. Uh, because I think most people, uh, if, if you talk about wild animal suffering, they will probably assume that it's just unavoidable, a fact of nature like the second law of thermodynamics, uh, whereas it's not. I'm currently in a village in Spain and it has a lot of straying cats. They're pretty well off because people feed them. Do you think this is bad? It would be better to not give any food to those cats? Essentially, if you've ever seen a cat playing with a, a mouse or a bird, it's horrific. And yet, of course, cats don't understand the implications of what they are doing. Now, my personal view would be that the world would be a better place without cats. However, this uh, triggers reactions of horror from many devoted cat lovers who say that their little tiddles wouldn't hurt a fly. Uh, essentially, the solution, as I see it, is to use fertility regulation, catnip-flavoured, uh, cultured mincemeat, essentially roundabout uh, stopgaps like this, but also to open up a debate as to the long-term future of predation. There's a plan for a predator-free New Zealand for the year 2050. And the reason that this plan has traction is that it's pitched as a way to restore the status quo. Invasive uh, predators uh, essentially have been harming native New Zealand wildlife. And the idea is that it will be possible to use tools such as uh, genetic engineering, CRISPR, gene drives to actually drive to extinction invasive predators. Now, the idea in New Zealand isn't to create 
idyllic Garden of Eden in which there is no suffering. It's to preserve the status quo. Uh, but something like this will be uh, possible uh, in principle at any rate throughout the living world to create a kind of pan-species welfare state eventually. I think what is at place is not just speciesism in the sense of um, an assumed hierarchy between humans and animals, but also within animals. The well-being of a cat, or even just the sheer existence of a cat, is valued more than that of a mouse. Yes. Uh, if one were watching a documentary on mice, and if the mice were given individual names, people would be identifying with the individual mice, and perhaps seeing cats as sinister killers. This is not the way the narrative is, is normally uh, catched. What is really at stake here is a greater ability to systematize. I have a, a friend in California, a tremendously compassionate friend, who seems to spend half her life rescuing cats and half her life rescuing mice and birds that the cats have mauled. And so, although, yeah, I would very much uh, urge people to consider the perspective of all sentient beings, we also need, uh, yeah, to adopt this kind of systematizing mindset. How can we prevent all suffering? And yeah, that is going to involve pretty radical solutions. Uh, I think it's good to uh, uphold the principle of the sanctity of life uh, uh, in that I don't think any predator, human or non-human predator, uh, should be harmed. But I do think, nonetheless, that uh, the right not to be harmed, it doesn't follow from this right that anyone has a right to harm others. And clearly, obligate predators, uh, yeah, by their very nature at present, do harm others. But in terms of what so-called wildlife documentaries, they bear about as much resemblance to life in the wild as, as kind of propaganda vehicle. It really is uh, the case of a narrator, a particular voiceover, a particular moon music, a particular structure. Uh, and yeah, essentially, because most animals born in the wild die of starvation at a very early age, an honest documentary would show this. It would be just extremely boring, uh, stroke depressing, just watching uh, essentially creatures slowly starving to death. Uh, but if we're really actually trying to do justice to what is going on, that that is what's happening right now. But there's also a speciesism in another sense. It's not just about who that we identify rather with the predators, rather identify with what we consider to be the winners, the top of the food chain. It's also that we have ideas that um, for it to really experience pain to really suffer you need a brain of a certain size and functionality yeah I think most of us have 
some kind of dimmer switch model for sentience with humans as the most sentient and small creatures, ants and worms as marginally sentient. And although this has a grain of truth, it's no more than a grain of truth because if you look at our most intense experiences, uh, agony, despair, unbearable terror, orgasmic bliss, they are mediated by the most primitive parts of the nervous system and the limbic brain. Whereas if you think of the activities that make us distinctively human, such as, for example, generative syntax or the ability to uh, solve mathematical equations, they are phenomenally very thin uh, and resistant to introspection. So, yes, although a pig or a zebra uh, or a manatee, uh, yeah, they uh, may not uh, be any more intelligent, any more sapient than uh, a human toddler, nonetheless, it's almost certainly the case that they are just as sentient and just as we have a responsibility to care for toddlers, we have a responsibility to care for non-human animals. Does it even need a limbic system to experience uh... Uh, yes, in the case uh, in the case of anencephalic uh, babies, uh, sometimes they are regarded as non-sentient, uh, but nonetheless uh, they can manifest signs of uh, distress. Uh, and yeah, in the case of, uh, for example, uh, invertebrates, uh, worms, for example, no, they don't have a limbic system, but they do have strongly conserved opioid and dopamine pathways. They manifest the same responses to noxious stimuli, uh, the same responses to uh, human drugs of, of, of abuse. Essentially, our reward circuitry is extremely strongly conserved over evolutionary history. Uh, the pleasure-pain axis ancient. And though maybe it's impossible to prove the sentience of uh, any other uh, being apart from uh, oneself, nonetheless, yeah, the assumption must be that fear, pain, agony, essentially they are identical uh, across the phylogenetic tree. What do you think are the smallest, uh, least complex creatures that experience pain? Ooh, here, here unfortunately we are going deep into the realm of philosophy. Is it possible for single-celled creatures, animals, to experience some kind of rudimentary experience, pleasure and pain? I suspect it is, but any experience of pain in a single-celled organism is going to be ethically trivial, far less than a pinprick. So I think we should focus on multicellular uh, organisms with either nerve ganglia uh, or uh, fully developed nervous systems. So far as we know, your enteric nervous system is not a subject of experience. Even though individual neurons may have micro-consciousness, 
nonetheless, there's no unity there. Yet, for unexplained reasons, uh, the central nervous system and the brain does support this phenomenal unity. And I think this is true in, for example, a, a, a bumblebee, a uh, little miniature island universe, little world simulation of the bumblebee, and of course in, in, in humans. But how this is actually possible, though I've written about the topic and explored, is scientifically unknown. Why aren't we just micro-experiential zombies? But the moral relevance of this question is that, although uh, I suspect, as I said, that the pleasure-pain axis itself is maybe, maybe even billions of, of, of years old, uh, essentially it's only with the Cambrian explosion that anything really started to matter in any non-trivial sense. Speaking of size, you mentioned uh, mollusks and uh, arthropods as well. Yes, yes. pods they're like a, a millimeter large and they experience pain they have yes, I, yeah. dopamine receptors yes I, I would not pretend that uh, an insect or a coffee pod uh, suffers to the extent that a toddler does but for example uh, certain species of uh, dolphin or whale have actually more neurons uh, than humans and larger limbic systems. Therefore, the possibility exists that they may support more intense forms of sentience, depending on how they solve the binding problem. But the actual experience is kind of the same. It's not about because you have more receptors, you experience more pain. It could be exactly the same pain. Every like every insect could experience the same degree of pain as we do. That is a possibility, and the, the possible risk of being speciesist, though, I'm inclined to think otherwise. But here's an example, you know, think, think of the way that when one withdraws one's hand from a, a hot stove, and sometimes yeah, one actually experiences the searing pain only scores of milliseconds after one's hand has withdrawn. Now, one possibility is that pain is irrelevant to withdrawing one's hand. The other is that peripheral nociceptors in one's hand are encapsulated, that they do experience micro pain, but it's just inaccessible to one's central nervous system. Um, I think there is some link between the number of neurons and intensity of experience, but electrode studies suggest that uh, you know it's possible to use an awake, verbally competent subject who has bits of his or her uh, brain stimulated with microelectrodes. Some areas seems to uh, involve minimal experience. Others, uh, either kind of complex uh, experiences, sometimes just uh, a speckle of color or a sound, but sometimes, uh, yeah, intense pleasure or pain. Uh, so, yeah, it's not simply a matter of totting up the number of neurons, but nonetheless, a creature of millions, tens of millions, hundreds or even thousands of millions 
of, of neurons, other things being equal, one would expect for the creature to suffer, to be more intensely aware than a creature that simply had a few dozen neurons. And what about plants? Uh, the risk of being dogmatic, I'm going to say, no, plants are not unitary subjects of experience. Uh, individual plant cells are encased in thick cellulose cell walls. Uh, there would be no evolutionary advantage for organisms without the capacity for rapid self-propelled motion in developing an energetically expensive nervous system. Uh, admittedly, there are unknowns here, but uh, essentially, if individual plant cells do experience some kind of rudimentary what it's likeness, qualia, micro experiences, nonetheless, the fact that they are encased in thick cellulose cell walls suggests that there is no way that they can be uh, uh, unified subjects. You mentioned the possibility that uh, animals experience more pain than us, and you mentioned in particular large sea mammals. But I wonder as well about small animals. For instance, I mean, there have been these experiments with fish when they were given uh, anxiolytics, they became much more aggressive uh, and expensive which showed, I think, the amount of fear they experience, like, all the time. Yes, I mean, depressants, though normally they will tend to uh, subdue, it depends which particular nerve cells are actually being depressed, which can have the effect of disinhibiting others. Humans, even though they are talking so much about anxiety disorders and so on, but they pretty much eradicated all the sources of essential fears, like really life threats. It's not a daily experience to, to be afraid if you will die. Yes, we, we forget what it is like uh, to be absolutely terrified for one's life. Maybe in the course of a lifetime, very, very rarely one will be in a situation where one is literally terrified. But yeah, one just forgets just how awful that experience is. Some people, tragically, sadly, with uh, panic disorder and the like, uh, do experience uh, such feelings uh, more, more frequently. And as they will attest, the feeling of uh, panic is absolutely terrible. And uh, in the wild, uh, given the nature of uh, the food chain, predation, many herbivores, yes, spend a lot of their lives extremely anxious, fearful, and occasionally absolutely terrified. Recently, there's been some discussion over the reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone uh, National Park and how that they are allegedly beneficial for ecosystems because they have recreated the landscape of fear, they have suppressed numbers of herbivores which were otherwise uh, breeding un uncontrollably, and this was supposedly a good thing, rewilding. And yet, wolves eat their larger victims alive. I would say that this is absolutely barbaric. 
that just as humans tend to flourish best when neither incarcerated nor wild, the same principle should be applied in our national parks. You could argue, of course, as a conservationist, that this is as nature is and nature uh, has an intrinsic value and so pain too. It's unpleasant, but um, it's, it's nature. Yeah, it's just, people tend to uh, argue how wonderful nature is from the comfort of their armchair, that in their own lives they want security, shelter, guaranteed income, food supply, security, uh, and yet uh, deny this luxury to non-human animals. There's this perception as well when it comes to humans that uh, pain is an essential experience. When you think of medical indications, if you would come up with a new a treatment that would just make you more happy, uh, this would be not enough to get a permission for this treatment. You have to indicate some illness, some disorder, and which of course leads to that now everything that we don't like is called a disorder because that's the only way we find it uh, legitimate to, to cure it. Not just to say, oh, but it's just because we don't like it. Yes, you're absolutely right. Even the wonder drug that essentially made you feel blissfully happy, but at the same time extremely high-functioning, it couldn't get a product license unless there was some notional disorder it was treating. Here's an extreme example. Someone like Joe Cameron, who has two unusual genes that mean that she has extremely high levels of anandamide, Uh, she's a retired vegan school teacher. Uh, she is never anxious, never stressed, never depressed, but she is extremely uh, socially responsible, high functioning. Now, one thing that will be possible in the relatively near term future is to use designer drugs or gene therapy to treat what one might call anandamide deficiency disorder. Anandamide is the, the Sanskrit for, for bliss, and essentially Joe Cameron uh, has unusually high, rich anandamide function. Uh, and if we are insistent that drugs, gene therapies can only be used to medicalize us, yes, then it could be said that most of us have anandamide deficiency disorder, which uh, leads us to feel intermittently uh, anxious, depressed, stressed, and have all kinds of painful experiences. If it would be possible to eradicate all unpleasant experiences, would we still decide about anything? Uh, what is the difference between this scenario and right away wireheading us into an eternal orgasm? What is absolutely critical is preserving information sensitivity. And it's, I think it helps today to look at some of today's outliers, just as there are people tragically who go through life animated by gradients of ill-being, they are chronically depressed, At the other end of the spectrum, there are people, they're not clinically manic, they're just hypothymic. They have an extremely high 
hedonic set point and they respond adaptively to life's challenges. Uh, some stimuli feel better than others, but their hedonic range is rather different from the rest of us. Before going off into extravagant sci-fi, it's worth uh, investigating people who today are hypothymic. The elite 0.1% of the population, the kind of hedonic elite, uh, whereas tragically some people spend almost all of their lives depressed, extremely hypothymic people with a high hedonic set point go through life animated essentially by information-sensitive gradients of well-being. And we know originally from twin studies, uh, more recently from developments in molecular biology, that this is a very high degree of genetic loading. And if we are trying to create a hyperthymic civilization, rather than creating uniform happiness, it's important to focus on hedonic recalibration raising people's hedonic set points. Uh, essentially, it enables us to respond adaptively to good and bad stimuli. It enables the continuation of intellectual progress. Intuitively, one might imagine that extremely happy people wouldn't do much. They'd just be indolent lotus eaters. But on the contrary, it tends to be the happiest people who have the most desires, who, who tend to be most active, whereas low mood is associated with behavioral suppression. And that before exploring transhumanist visions of a super civilization with a hedonic range of, let's say, plus 10 to plus 30, or even plus 90 to plus 100, let's aim to ratchet up hedonic set points worldwide so that everyone can enjoy the benefits of being hypothymic. I mean, hypothymic, yeah, it's just a, a, a fancy way of saying that one is temperamentally extremely uh, happy. Now, people who are temperamentally happy Yes, they are likely to have rose-tinted spectacles, but known biases can be corrected. Uh, before creating an entire hypothymic civilization, we need to have a, a serious discussion as how to conserve the functional analogues of depressive realism. But nonetheless, yeah, if one is temperamentally hypothymic, one is likely to find life absolutely wonderful by its its very nature. Uh, one can acknowledge the existence of bad things in the world, but life seems fundamentally good. This is, I would see it in the kind of short to medium term is, is, is what we should be aiming for, for humans, but also non-human animals too. Let's get one step further and do this like sci-fi scenario. There would be no negative feelings at all. Which would mean, when suffering is your main ethical concern, that in such a world it would even be fine to eat each other because it would be a joyful experience for both sides. I think it is prudent to maintain certain uh, taboos uh, and a taboo against eating each other would be good. And, uh, yeah, the possibility of consensual cannibalism, 
would it be inherently wrong? Well, I suspect uh, that given the happiest people tend to be the greatest life lovers, that the thought of being eaten and ceasing to be able to enjoy life's pleasures, I would imagine that would diminish the well-being, not cause suffering, but diminish the well-being of any possible victim. So, uh, yeah, I don't think this is very likely. But imagine we would create animals that would just enjoy being killed by us and the, the way we kill them in slaughterhouses uh, would uh, create kind of a situation of an orgiastic bliss. Although this might technically feasible, I would consider this ethically unwise. I think it's much more prudent to try to uphold and extend the principle of the sanctity of life even some kind of high-tech Jainism that if, if history teaches us anything it's that this humans can't be trusted and upholding the principle of uh, the sanctity of life is much more likely to, to lead uh, to, to better consequences even in very strict utilitarian terms um, I'm just just One advantage of focusing on hedonic recalibration, of ratcheting up your hedonic set point, is that it can be conservative. It needn't challenge your existing values and preference architecture. I think this is really uh, important in selling the vision uh, to bioconservatives. Instead of my talking about my vision of, of paradise or the ideal society, Think of your vision of, of the good life. But the implications would be massive. I mean, and I assume unpredictable. I mean, we have no idea what disaster this could create. Well, it will be good certainly to do worst case scenarios. What could go wrong? Having said that, other things being equal, People who are happy, they tend to love life more, whereas people who are unhappy and depressive, it's the opposite. And consider at the moment how something like 850,000 people worldwide uh, take their own lives each year. Uh, now imagine this syndrome with advanced technology. How many people who take Uh, their own lives each year would take the rest of the world down with them if they could. And as well as people who are clinically depressed or suicidal, there are, goodness knows, how many hundreds of millions of people uh, who suffer a great deal in their lives. And uh, suffering is, is a recipe for all kinds of conflict, whereas the happiest people tend to be Life lovers who jealously want to protect and preserve life. Clearly this is extremely speculative. But in a hypothymic civilization, even the nature of things going wrong uh, changes. What does it mean to, for anything to go wrong when uh, any form of experience below hedonic zero is impossible? I think all the anxiety that exists in the Western world has a really good side effect, and that is uh, the reproduction rates of humans in the Western world went down. 
I mean, for many reasons, of course, it also has to do with uh, social security and so on and so on and different perceptions of what it is to have a child. But you could imagine uh, happier people, less scared people have more children. And then you would have uh, even more creatures that could suffer and make others suffer. Um, what is going to be the nature of long-term selection pressure? What is going to be the nature of procreative freedom? This dilemma is really going to come to a head when we conquer the biology of aging. When we conquer the biology of aging, uh, uh, reproduction is going to become, within the next few centuries, uh, a, a momentous, carefully controlled event, I think. And this is good because if one is conducting a genetic experiment, and all sexual reproduction is a genetic experiment, then one should be extremely mindful of the consequences. I mean, I personally might be a soft <laughs> antinatalist. I don't uh, think it's ethically permissible to create new life and, and suffering, but most people are not antinatalists. Uh, but I mean, there's going to be a reproductive revolution and how it will play out clearly is extremely speculative. I would just quite strongly predict that there will be selection pressure in favor of well-being and eventually extreme well-being. And you just have to think if you really could choose everything from the approximate uh, intelligence to the hedonic set point to the hedonic range of your future child, what genetic dial settings would you choose? Instead of working first on our happiness, we could as well first focus on our compassion, like making us more capable of experiencing empathy. Yes, it's, it's tricky in that if one were really truly empathetic, and there are differences between empathy, sympathy and, and compassion, subtle but important differences, but if one really truly empathized or could glimpse the suffering in the world, one would be absolutely overwhelmed, one would go insane. Uh, to actually function in this world, one has to, in some sense, switch off. Which is why I think it's important to stress not just more compassion, but a richer capacity for systematization. Perhaps unfairly, people high on the AQ scale, Asperger's, autism, are thought to be less empathetic, but their, their empathy often take rather different forms. And if we are serious about tackling the problem of suffering worldwide, we need to switch cognitive style into almost kind of hyper-systematizing gear. Compassion will tend to be focused on yeah, particular individuals, whereas uh, what is needed is to harness this compassionate impulse with a very, very hard-headed approach, thinking, yeah, uh, how can we ensure that all individuals, regardless of race or species, are helped, and in the long term, too. This is what uh, effective altruism uh, entails. Just facing out all life on Earth, you could argue that that would be the simplest way to get rid of all suffering. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, when, when Buddha says, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering, to best of our knowledge, said, no one said, hey, Buddha, does that mean you'd favor destroying the world? Whereas with modern technology, 
naively, yes, if ending suffering is our only value, then apocalyptic solutions are simpler than the monumental computational task of reprogramming the biosphere. I don't regard this route as fruitful at all. It turns people who would otherwise be allies into potential mortal enemies. I mean, personally, I, yeah, as I said, I, I consider uh, Darwinian life is unimaginably cruel and naively, yes, some kind of global doomsday device just to, to end life on Earth and this grotesque experiment. But for evolutionary reasons, most people don't think like that. It is counterproductive uh, to argue along those lines. And I think it's much better to say we should be enshrining the sanctity of life and using the tools of biotechnology to uh, eradicate the capacity to suffer. I often like to cite the, uh, the constitution of the World Health Organization. The health is a state of complete physical, emotional, social well-being. Ridiculously, breathtakingly ambitious, that definition of health. It's not likely to set anyone's alarm bells ringing to create Good health for all is defined by the World Health Organization. Essentially, yeah, this, uh, this is going to involve uh, genetic engineering. You have been comparing the suffering of animals with that of toddlers. A lot of the discourse as well when it comes to rights of nature, um, Christopher Stone, uh, who first came up with this concept for the Western world, he... Um, equaled nature to legal incompetence. Isn't there something very paternalistic in this idea of um, helping nature and knowing what it wants without asking? The issue of consent, uh, non-human animals make it extremely clear that they don't want to be harmed. Yeah, sure, there are complications because, after all, uh, predators clearly do want to harm their prey. But essentially, predators don't understand the implications of what they are doing, uh, that they are no more morally culpable in the strict sense than humans are you know, playing a violent uh, video game. And in any case, uh, I don't think there is any such thing as the right to harm. And just as if a toddler is bashing his playmate over the head with a brick, we would uh, stop the toddler in question. Likewise, in a more systematic, comprehensive way, uh, we have a responsibility to stop uh, uh, animal toddlers, so to speak, harming each other. They need looking after, they need supervision. It's paternalistic, yes, but toddlers, infants, the severely mentally handicapped, they need care. But animals can sustain by themselves. And when you introduce veganism for predators, when you introduce fertility regulation, healthcare, hunger aid, this really affects their lives. Yes, in some sense, some non-human animals in the wild can take care of themselves 
in their relatively short lives in the same way that one could say that uh, cavemen could take care of themselves. Many died at an early age, many suffered terrible diseases, injuries, infant mortality was extremely high, there was no uh, ability to care for the old and the, the sick effectively. Really, I don't think one could say that non-human animals in the wild can truly care for themselves. For brief periods, yes, they can appear to flourish, but uh, most animal lives in the world, in the wild, are nasty, brutish, and short. When you assume that for an animal in the wild it's better to live long than short, and at the same time you say they don't have the intellectual capacities to have an idea of their life expectancy. So then you would have to compare being killed suddenly at an early age and the whole problematic of aging that we deal with and that in nature is far less of a problem. Yes, uh, once again, one needs to think of timescales here. Uh, I once uh, wrote a paper, Welfare State for Elephants, dealing with the kind of interventions that would be needed for elderly elephants, orthodontics and the like. I think it is what we should be aiming for uh, long term. Uh, in the case of, uh, of small, fast breeders, Uh, genetic interventions were going to be uh, much more uh, uh, realistic. But yeah, in terms of radical anti-aging therapies, uh, when they become available, humans are going to want uh, them not just for themselves, but also for our pets, for our animal companions, and in our wildlife parks uh, too. Yeah, I mean, most humans flourishing As we do, neither wild nor incarcerated, the same principle extending to the rest of the animal kingdom. But it's going to be messy, it's going to be expensive, there are going to be mistakes, there is going to be uh, pushback from bioconservatives. But in the long run, imagine we do encounter an advanced civilization that does have a, a pan-species welfare state in which all sentient beings do lead lives animated by information-sensitive gradients of bliss, would we recommend they return to ancestral horrors? It would seem preposterous. So your scenario is animals or non-humans, uh, just as us, they don't die anymore, and s except for accidents? Yes. Uh, Robo-carers are likely to be ubiquitous too. We haven't really touched on... Uh, the revolution in artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, yeah, the implications of a world of nanny AI. And so it's not as though it's going to be individual uh, humans who are going to be uh, out in the, in the deep oceans or uh, Amazonia who are going to be individually caring for small rodents or, or, or something like that. But yes, a living world in which uh, there is not disease, aging, starvation. So, and predators would have prey replicas so that they could still follow their instincts? They would have robotic, artificial prey? Absolutely. I and mean, I play violent video games to relax. It's a bit sad and I, you know, I call myself 
run and combat vegan pacifist clan herbivores but nonetheless in some sense i am fulfilling you know very primitive ancestral uh, uh, desires here and we can do the same uh, for lions and other obligate predators too so you imagine sharks playing video games in, in which they are hunting <laughs> in the case of sharks People, on the whole, with exceptions, are less uh, keen to preserve sharks. And I would perhaps think that we could have a debate as to whether we really want to conserve different species of shark in the long term. I'm not suggesting anything uh, violent, exterminating sharks or anything like that, but do sharks have reproductive rights or would it be good uh, to phase out sharks entirely except from ex an extremely constrained artificial environments. Essentially I would think that we can have uh, an ethical debate about sharks and maybe snakes and other, shall we say, uh, less uh, socially favoured predators. I think you completely underestimate the popularity of sharks. Uh, there's areas in the world that basically live from shark tourism. Yeah, in which case it would be necessary uh, to reprogram sharks. But I think in which case it would be good to have uh, more educational videos, documentaries showing what actually sharks do to their prey and uh, encourage people to empathize more with what it is like to be the victim of a shark. But you have to see, this is already a process of sublimation rather than us killing creatures brutally. You know, many people like to observe sharks doing it. At least in the ocean where it's only fish and where many people think that fish don't feel that much, if at all. In the case of fish, yes, most people underestimate the sentience of fish, they don't consider what it's like to be asphyxiated or eaten alive. What is your favorite uh, sea animal? Um, well, I'm fond of uh, sirenians, dugongs, manatees, essentially herbivores. Uh, yes, they are very cute, they are placid, they don't harm anyone. Who are the predators of dugongs? That's a good question. I don't actually know. <laughs> Sorry, perhaps we can Google this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, interesting, there's not many. Uh, some, sometimes crocodiles, killer whales, and sharks pose a threat to the young. Yeah, so that's, that's similar to that was the impression I had, that essentially f f food uh, nutrition is generally the rate-limiting uh, step in controlling population sizes. But interestingly, the biggest problem is um, bacterial infections, parasites, so not so different from us. Yeah, essentially we want a, a welfare state for dugongs and manatees. By welfare state, I mean in, in the broad sense of the, the kind of Scandinavian model. 
Uh, the difference is uh, in that clearly damned human animals can't participate in markets. But in the sense that uh, toddlers, you know, they shouldn't be imprisoned, they should be free living, they should be cared for. Uh, yeah. So imagine you have now established the welfare state for dugongs. You made sure that there where they live, there are no predators. You made sure that they have enough seagrass. You know, seagrass is as well threatened by pollution and climate change, but there are initiatives to, to work on replanting seagrass. You take care in case they get ill, that they get antibiotics or whatever is needed. They can have a neurochip, you know, the first neurochips may be expensive, nonetheless large, uh, terrestrial and marine vertebrates. It can be microchipped, so their interests can be remotely protected. Clearly there are, is potential for a, a human dystopia with this kind of global panopticon, but essentially it's coming. But then, at some point, because we haven't solved the problem of aging and dying, they will become weak they would have a terminal illness and this illness might be painful. Would your welfare state also include uh, euthanasia? Yes, until one can solve the problem of uh, aging, just as, you know, a much love uh, canine companion. Yeah, if uh, one realizes that a, a dog is terminally ill, uh, the appropriate thing to do is to uh, euthanize the dog. Likewise, until we can cure uh, aging uh, and disease, something similar uh, should be implemented for large uh, terrestrial and marine vertebrates. Do you think that paradoxically, because most humans don't care so much about the creatures of the sea, that chances of implementing your ideas of uh, compassionate biology are easier in the ocean except for like some pristine predators and so on um, that humans wouldn't care so much if we like alter fish to make them more happy there would be less resentment against it I never thought that the question of wild animal suffering would seriously be discussed in my lifetime and somewhat to my surprise there are now uh, flourishing Facebook groups and even one or two uh, academic papers on the problem of wild animal suffering and the reason I think is that in discussing wild animal suffering one isn't asking anyone to do anything about it personally. In the case of uh, going vegan, one is asking people to change their dietary habits, so there is a lot of pushback. Whereas in the case of making fish or other marine creatures uh, happy, it's not as though anyone, well, not as though most people have any any strong uh, feelings here. As long as they, you know, tax money, they don't actually have to pay for it. I suspect most people would be relatively relaxed about the possibility. As having said that, as soon as one talks about genetic engineering or anything like that, hackles will be raised. The potential dangers that come with gene drives are enormous possibilities yeah, that they bridge species barriers, that they mutate, 
or even that they are intentionally abused, how to deal with this problem? Yes, uh, although unforeseen consequences uh, may be anticipated, a bigger worry, I think, is bioterrorism. And in theory, a team of smart postgrads who knew what they were doing could, uh, yes, uh, they could crash an ecosystem. Um, why they would do, do so, well, that's speculative, but yeah, uh, they are tremendously powerful, potentially gene drives. But this is true of any form of new technology. And yeah, I, mean, I was about to say some platitude about let's hope that we uh, use these new technologies wisely. But uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that it is possible to, to do terrible things with uh, genetic engineering just as it's possible to do insanely good things. If we do have the vision of a living world in which all sentient beings can enjoy life based on gradients of bliss, I don't know any alternative. If we don't intervene in nature, if we don't reprogram ourselves, uh, reprogram other ecosystems, then quite unimaginable levels of suffering and cruelty are going to exist indefinitely. This was the eighth episode of Ocean Wants, featuring David Pierce. Ocean Wants is a podcast series commissioned and produced by TVA 21 Academy. Conceived, hosted, and edited by Ingo Nierman. Music composed and arranged by Villa Haimala. Intro read by Joan Jonas. Credits read by Stacey Boucher. Sound edited by Robin Michel. Produced by Ingo Nierman and Maria Montero Sierra. Hear more episodes at ocean-archive.org, dertunk.ch, or subscribe with your podcast provider.